perhaps virtually everybody doesn't remember. I was here actually about maybe four years ago. Heritage College uh, had a travel team come and we're leading in worship, and so I, I was the, uh, uh, the teacher who preached that, that uh, Sunday. But uh, it's good to be back. Things are obviously quite a bit different. You have incorporated liturgical dancing. I'm impressed. That's awesome. That's so avant-garde. I love it. Uh, and I want to bring you greetings from Heritage College and Seminary. I've been there for uh, nine years. This is my ninth year, closing out my ninth year. And time has flown. Like, it only seems like, like eight and a half. Like, <laughs> it's been really good. God has been blessing us uh, tremendously. Uh, and we're humbled because uh, in the time that I've, actually in the first few years that I taught, uh, I began teaching at Heritage, like three uh, Bible colleges closed down out west. And for the last maybe two decades, theological education, both in Canada and in the U.S., has been on a steady decline. Uh, and yet our numbers have, over the course of nine years, have really uh, improved tremendously. The seminary's grown by 50%. Um, so we're, we thank God for that. The pandemic, right, 2020-21, has been difficult. Uh, but as opposed to a lot of schools, uh, like Southern, like Liberty, like... Um, um, Messiah, bigger schools, more prominent schools down south who've had to let go faculty, let go staff, like our numbers have held. So we really thank God that uh, uh, we haven't gone up in the last year, but we haven't gone down either. So we're really grateful for God's, we know it's God's grace. And so we, we're just blessed by him as he shows us favor in that way. So thank you for your prayers and thank you for your support. We, uh, we appreciate all of that. So let me ask you this morning, do you know uh, any and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but do you know any prickly people? You know, and by prickly, I think you know I'm not talking about pimply and I'm not talking about spiky hair, but I'm talking about, you know, those people, when you, when you brush up against them relationally, they tend to leave you with uh, emotional scars and abrasions and, 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 and bruises. Like, do you know any prickly people? Don't point, sir. That's okay. Don't point. So my first church where I pastored uh, in Windsor, don't hold that against me, Londoners, um, we had a lot of prickly people. But there's this one lady in particular who was particularly spiky. And um, all three of us pastors, we had crossed swords with her on a number of different occasions. But I tended to cross swords more with her because she had three kids at that time who were in youth and young adults, and I was the pastor of youth and young adults. And so we crossed swords quite a bit. And I remember on one particular occasion, I was chairing uh, our, our ministries committee meeting. And so basically, we would meet quarterly. And so all of the heads of different ministry departments uh, would meet together. There'd be a dozen of us in a room, and we'd, uh, we would just kind of update what was going on. And, and so, uh, and I would chair this meeting. And, and when it came time to give the report for the, the youth, that was part of my portfolio. And so I began to proceed to give the youth ministry update. And I don't know what I said, uh, but I obviously what I said was not the right thing uh, because I set this lady off. And she started to lay into me with ferocity. It was unbelievable. And I could not get a word out edgewise just to try to respond to what she was saying. And she was just going on and on and on. And then when she was done, she got up, she stormed out the room, and she slammed the door. And I was just like, oh, what just happened here? 
You know, like this, this woman had just verbally skewered me publicly at this meeting. Like, like how, do you, how do you move forward from that? Right? Like, Scripture calls us to love our brothers and sisters, um, but how do you love that? Right? Like, loving people in general, never mind prickly people, is difficult, isn't it? In fact, it's impossible, and it takes nothing less than the very power of God at work in you to enable you to love that. That's Paul's working assumption in Philippians. And so that's why right at the outset of his letter, he prays for the Philippians. He prays for their love. You see, there's a number of interrelated reasons why Paul writes Philippians. Uh, He writes Philippians uh, because it's basically a thank you letter. Not basically, but that's part of it. It's a thank you letter. He would... um, he would ask his churches, the churches that he planted, to give him funds so that he could spend all of his time preaching and teaching rather than only evenings and weekends so that he could do, like, leather worker. That was his trade in order to pay the bills. So he would put forward calls to support, and on one occasion, none of his churches came up to bat for him. Only one did, the Philippians, and so he wants to thank them for that, and that's chapter 4. Uh, he writes this, this letter because there's false teaching that's starting to infect the church, and that's really chapter 3. He writes this letter um, because he wants to update the church. This is the church that he planted 10 years earlier, so he's their spiritual dad, if you will. Well, he, this is one of his prison epistles, right? He's, he's writing from a prison cell awaiting the executioner's acts. So his spiritual kids are worried, concerned about the apostle, and so he wants to update them as to the goings-on uh, around him while he's there in prison, and that's the back half of chapter 1. Another reason why he writes this letter, the kind of, uh, the, is the, the background amongst all these reasons, is because there's conflict going on. Right? And there's different levels of conflict and layers of conflict. Uh, there's, there's evidence, if you look at the letter carefully, of uh, a rift between the leadership and the laity. There's two prominent women and around which groups are galvanizing around and is threatening to pull the church apart at the seams. And so he wants to address this. He wants to cu- try and nip it in the bud. Now, the church sends Epaphroditus, this is chapter 2, sends Epaphroditus to Paul to give him uh, money to soldier alongside of Paul in the proclamation of the gospel in Rome, um, and also to update Paul as to this is what's going on. And the church is hoping that Paul will send back with Epaphroditus Timothy, right? Paul's right-hand man. But Paul says he can't afford to send Timothy back right now. Um, but he knows sending back Epaphroditus empty-handed is going to create a lot of disappointment in the church. And so he does not send Epaphroditus back empty-handed, but he sends him back with a divinely revealed, divinely inspired, inerrant scroll, the letter to the Philippians. And that's what we want to look at this morning. So loving prickly people and getting through conflict well, it, it depends on our prayer life, right? Like as we walk with Christ, as we mature with Christ, it's, it's not just that we pray, it's kind of a given, really, for the child of God. It's not just that we pray, but it's, it's how do you pray? Like how you pray, because we ought to be maturing in our prayers. And so Paul, along those lines, what he does here is he models how the church should pray. Remember, Paul upheld himself as a model for the churches, right? He will say, follow me as I follow Christ. In chapter 4, at the end, he will say, look, guys, whatever you've received from me or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. 
So he holds himself up as a model for the churches, but even when he's not saying it explicitly as he does at certain places, he will implicitly, that's his assumption that he's modeling. And so here in Philippians 1, he doesn't just simply say to the church, verses 3 and 4, yeah, I pray for you guys all the time. I mean, that in and of itself is pretty big, right? The apostle prays for us, wow. But he goes further to say in verses 9 through 11, oh yeah, and this is how I pray for you. So he's modeling. It's the idea, okay, wait, Paul prays this for us, then hmm, maybe we should be praying this for us as well. So are you dealing with prickly people or a prickly person this morning? Right? Maybe, maybe it's at your workplace, a prickly boss, maybe a prickly subordinate, uh, maybe there's a prickly person in your neighborhood, uh, in your extended family, perhaps in your immediate family, uh, or at Knollwood. Nah, it couldn't be at Knollwood. There's no prickly people here. And you're in the throes of conflict and you're looking for a way out. Well, Paul does not give us a way out, but he does give us a way through. He gives us a way through to navigate conflict, to get through, move through conflict well and in a redemptive manner. So I want to read for you uh, Philippians, but I want to start from verse 1 and then we'll go all the way to verse 9, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. But I'm going to focus on his prayer. So hear the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ, at, uh, in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, for whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, as we worshiped you through musical worship and through, um, and through teaching and uh, catechetical teaching, Lord, and through corporate prayer. So now we worship you. The focus of our worship turns to uh, hearing your word as it's preached and reflecting on your word. Uh, we invite your spirit to speak specifically, Lord, through uh, your holy word that you've inspired. Uh, speak to each one and give us ears to hear what, what you would say to each one of us, God. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So how can we get through our conflict well? and in a redemptive manner. I think this prayer gives us three, three truths or pre- three principles. First, we can get through conflict well by praying for a deeper love for one another. By praying for a deeper love for one another. Look at the first part of verse 9. 
And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. So let me give you two points of clarification on this love that Paul is referring to. He's not talking about our love for God. He's not praying that your love for God would abound, which is true, it ought to, but those are other letters, other texts. Here specifically, he's talking about their love for one another. And they are related, right? Our love for God and our love for one another is, is they're related. 1 John chapter 4 ties them together, right? The apostle John says in 1 John 4, he says, like, if you don't love God, then you're not going to love your brothers and sisters. And if you don't love your brothers and sisters, then that actually calls into question the veracity of your love, the genuineness of your love for God. So they're intimately related But Paul specifically is looking at the horizontal, right? Our love for one another. And along those lines, he's not talking about a a worldly, sentimental love, but he's talking about God's love, our experience of God's love, our sharing of God's love with our brothers and sisters. Because the way the world loves and the way God loves are completely different. Completely different. Most of us here, at some point, we've watched romantic comedies, and some of you might even be into romance movies. I'm not, but some of you might be, and that's good. I mean, to each his own. But invariably, like, they have a pattern, right? Whether it's a romantic comedy or a romance, there's a pattern. At some point in the movie, there's, there'll be a, a climactic moment where the two uh, lead characters will turn to each other, and they'll profess their love for one another. I love you. And the other person will respond, well, I love you gazing into each other's eyes. What does I love you mean? I love you in world speak means I find you lovely. You are so handsome. You are so pretty. You are so funny. You make me feel like the most important person in the whole world. I love you in world speak means I find you lovely. It's very conditional. That is not how God loves. God's love is is unconditional. Text after text after text shows us the unconditionality of God's love. God demonstrates his love for us, Paul says, in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we were reformed sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we saw the light and started to get our lives straightened out, Christ died for us. No, no, no. While we were still sinners, still at enmity with God, still hostile towards God, still God-haters, still idolaters, Christ died for us. He died for you. He died for me. God's love is unconditional. That's the love that he's talking about, our experience and sharing of God's love with one another. And we need to be praying for this regularly, frequently. Paul says, and this is my prayer in in verse 9 in the NIV, And it's funny that it translates it as a noun because it's actually a verb, right? He's literally saying, uh, and this I am praying. And because he used the present tense Greek verb here, the idea is that he prays this way a lot for them. This is not a one-off, right? He's not sitting down to write this letter to them and goes, oh, wait, I should pray for them because then I can say, oh, I pray for you. No, no, he prays for them a lot. Even though he hasn't seen them in a while, he prays for them a lot in this way. And this I'm praying for you. And our experience of God's love for each other, according to the prayer, it needs to grow, right? Verse 9 continues, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more, 
right? The word for bound there, again, it's a, it's a present tense verb, which means in Greek, literally, it's, a, it's your love might continually abound. Like, think of a balloon that's inflating. That's your love for one another, like a balloon inflating, not to continue to, to increase, to grow, like the rest of the Christian life, right? Like, as Christians, the Christianity, the Christian life is about growth, right? If, if your faith it's not just that you have faith in Jesus. Your faith in Jesus ought to grow over time. Right? Our, our, our godliness, our virtues ought to grow over time. Well, our experience of God's love for one another ought to grow over time. And notice how God's love is framed by discernment. That your love may abound more and more. And then the verse continues, in knowledge and depth of insight. You see, God's love cannot be reduced to, like, mushy sentimentality, right? Like like the world's love. That's not God's love. When God loves, God's love prompts him and moves him to act, right? God demonstrates his love for us in this, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he felt warm fuzzies in his heart when he thinks about us. Maybe, maybe he does. I I don't know for sure. But what I do know for sure is that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to die for us. God's love prompts him and moves him to act, but always in full accord with his righteousness, with his wisdom, with his discernment. You know, I, I needed a deeper love for that lady, the one that chewed me out there in that meeting. I need a, deep, deeper, a deeper experience of God's love for her. I remember an earlier occasion, uh, our swords crossed. Surprise, they crossed earlier. Um, at, at that first church, we had like a children's moment where the children would come forward to the front. Actually, the, the sanctuary is a lot like this one, actually. I don't know if this is the Hockley Church, Don Hockley, the architect. But anyway, they'd come up to the front, and, uh, and then a different person each week would give like a five-minute little devotional for them and pray for them and dismiss them to children's church. So this one particular Sunday, this lady, this prickly person, was doing the children's devotional. She did it and uh, prayed for them, dismissed them, and, you know, seemed to be okay by my thoughts anyway. So after the service, at the end, this, this new person, not even a regular attender, this new person comes to me and says, you know what that lady who's speaking to the kids there? I said, yeah. Uh, what she said offended me. Really? I'm kind of running it back in my head. What? Like, how did she offend you? And she goes, well, and she explained. I, wow. You know, I never thought about that. Huh. Okay, that's, that's actually interesting. I'll, uh, I'll let her know. Because I would want to know, right? If I unintended, I offend you accidentally, I would like to know. So I called her up, you know, the next day or a couple days after that to, to just kind of let her know. Come to find out she didn't want to know. <laughs> On the phone, she is reaming me out. Like, I, no joke, I have to have the phone like this because she is that loud. I can hear her perfectly with the phone like this. If I were to put it down, it probably would be shaking because she's speaking so loud. And as she's going on and on and on, and I'm just letting her vent at me and on and on and on, and she's talking about, you know what, if this is the way it's going to be, then I'm going to quit. And in my head, now this is just in my head, 
because I'm a responsible pastor. This is just in my head. I'm not saying it out loud, but in my head, as she's saying, yeah, I'm just going to quit, I'm like, yes, please quit. Please quit. In fact, quit our church too. Our nursery has enough babies. We don't need another one. Just make like a tree and leave. Just go. Like, I needed a deeper experience of God's love for that lady. If we want to be moving through conflict well and in a redemptive manner, we need to be praying for a deeper experience of God's love for one another. Secondly, what I want to show you from this prayer is this, that we can move through conflict well and redemptively by praying for sharper spiritual clarity. Sharper spiritual clarity. Look at the first part of verse 10. Paul prays this way, verse 9, so that, verse 10, so that you may be able to discern what is best. So the reason for praying for a deeper love is so that. So that is for sharper spiritual clarity. And spiritual clarity, I think, is about three things, maybe more, but at least three things. Uh, Spiritual clarity is about discerning what is best for Christ's glory. What is best for Christ's glory? Like, what drives you in life? What is your passion? How do you, what causes you to do what you do in life? For many people, um, even inside the church, having been a pastor for a long time, different churches, uh, a lot of it is the same stuff as what drives the secular world. Money, position, pleasure. Those are the things that orient the person. But Christ's glory ought to be what orients us. Christ's glory and honor ought to be how we orient what we do, what we do, uh, how we move through life. Ask yourself this question. When you're praying about something, ask yourself this question. Will the answer to my prayer glorify Christ? If the answer is no, then why are you praying it? Spiritual clarity besides being uh, about discerning what is best for Christ's glory, it's about discerning what is best for Christ's church, Christ's church uh, generally. How important is the church to you? Right, like how important is the church to you? The church was very important to the Apostle Paul. We, we can see that if you keep reading it in chapter 1. He's writing from a prison cell awaiting the executioner's acts. And in chapter 1, he's just kind of musing out loud. And he says later on in chapter 1, he says, you know what? To live is Christ. To live is Christ. But to die is gain. Better to depart. Better to depart and to be with Christ. That's the better thing. Even though to live is Christ for Paul. And we know, we know how Paul lived. Christ was absolutely magnified. But yet, Paul says, better for me to die and be with Jesus. And that just might happen because I don't know how this is going to go, brothers and sisters. But then he continues, but for your sake, church, I hope I get to stick around because I can continue to ground you and establish you in the gospel. That's how important the church was to the Apostle Paul. Like, do you plan your life around the church or do you plan church around your life? Like, how important is the church to you? I've known my, my last church before I, before I uh, took charge at, at Heritage, started my appointment at Heritage in my last church in Mississauga, there were a number of folks who were hockey parents. They would just disappear for six months. 
And then when hockey was over, boom, they're in church every Sunday. How important is the church to you? Ask yourself this question when you're praying about something. Will the answer to my prayer, will it benefit the church? If the answer is no, then why are you praying it? Spiritual clarity is also about discerning what is best for our brothers and sisters specifically. So it's discerning what's best for the church generally, but also about uh, discerning what's best for our brothers and sisters specifically. And we get a better glimpse at that in Romans 14. So Paul, one of the reasons why Paul writes Romans is because there is tremendous tension developing between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And you have Jewish Christians who are continuing to observe the law, not for salvation, so it has nothing to do with that. It's just part of the rich heritage, which Paul will say in Romans 7, the law is good, the law is holy, the law is just. And so because it's part of their heritage, they continue to observe the law, like kosher laws, eating kosher. But as long as they're observing those laws, what happens is they cannot eat with their Gentile brothers and sisters because their Gentile brothers and sisters are not kosher. They're not eating kosher, and they don't want to become ritually impure. Paul helps the church navigate that dynamic. And this is what he says. He says, Make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother or sister's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him or her it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed by what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother or sister for whom Christ died. Right? Spiritual clarity is about discerning what is best for our brothers and sisters. I remember uh, my first church when I was a youth pastor, I took my kids to this youth conference, and uh, it was a very powerful time, and God met, met my kids really, uh, really deeply. And so what I always do after we do something like that, the very next regularly scheduled youth meeting, uh, I, have, I do a debrief, right, where I just have the kids. Okay, so what was God saying to you at that at that that conference you know how was he you know how were you impacted and the kids and I had never broached this topic at all I, I eventually I was going to I just never broached it at all they're like you know we, we really feel convicted about the music we've been listening to like we really feel that's drawing us away from Christ right, so this is the 90s and this is like they were listening to like gangster rap and stuff like that and, and, and so they had this newfound conviction, and they said, so, so, what we, so I said, so what are you going to do about it? And I said, you know, we want to, like, bring in all our music next week at youth, and we want to just destroy it. We want to smash it. Right? I'm like, whoa, cool, giddy up. So the next week, <laughs> they're bringing in their, their CDs. So you young people, you don't really know what CDs are, but just think thin Frisbees with songs on them. And they're expensive, right? Like one CD is like 30 bucks with tax. And so I remember Mel brought in a stack like this. That's, a, that's like 200 bucks. They bring in their music to smash. Now, truth be told, that was not my conviction. I mean, I certainly wasn't listening to that garbage. But you know what? I, I didn't think that secular music in and of itself was necessarily a bad thing. That was not my conviction. But I also knew that I had to participate in that. I had to bring in my music because it wouldn't, 
If I simply said, oh yeah, you kids, that's good. You guys do that. I, I'm not. I'm still good with my secular stuff. Uh, but you, you smash your stuff. I'm, I'm good. Because invariably, some of my younger brothers and sisters there, they would have stumbled over that. Oh wait, are we really doing the right thing? Like maybe it's actually not that bad because Pastor Wayne seems... Right, discerning what was best for my brothers and sisters meant that I had to bring in my music and smash it along with them, and I did. Like, spiritual clarity is about discerning what is best for our brothers and sisters. So if we want to move through conflict well, we need to be praying for sharper spiritual clarity. And then thirdly and finally, we can move through conflict well and redemptively by praying for greater personal Christ-likeness. Greater personal Christ-likeness. Verse 10. So that, you may, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. So in other words, that we would reflect Christ's character, right? And so this prayer of, for greater personal Christ-likeness is not for that person. God, make them more like Jesus. No, it's for me. It's for the prayer. It's for the intercessor that I would grow and uh, reflect more of Jesus' character. The word for pure there in the NIV, it means unmixed, uh, like unleavened bread or unmixed bread. So our character should become purer. should become purer. I love how Paul puts it in Galatians 5. Paul says, So I say live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature de- desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, factions, envy, drunkenness. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Our character should become purer. The word for blameless there in the prayer, it means to not cause others to stumble. Jesus talked about that in the Gospels, didn't he? Jesus said, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble into sin, it would be better for him or her to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling block. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom the stumbling block comes. So we're praying for greater personal Christ-likeness, like reflecting, becoming pure in our character. And it's important to note that this greater personal Christ-likeness comes through God working in us. Right? Look at the first part of verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And the fill there, it's, it's passive voice, which means God is the one. We're not filling ourselves with the fruit of righteousness. God is the one who's doing this for us. Long time, back in the day, in between pastorates, I, I worked construction for a couple of years. And so I was just a, gen- I was a grunt. Right? That's all I was. I was a grunt. General laborer, unskilled laborer. I didn't do the fancy stuff. I just did all the heavy lifting and toting, that kind of stuff. If you've ever worked on a construction site, you know that it is, it's teeming with activity. 
right? You've got like bulldozers doing their thing, and you've got the excavators doing its thing, and the crane doing its thing, and the compactor doing its thing, and, and all this, there's all this activity going on. And that's why, I don't know when this happened, I should look it up, but some genius invented the sign, men at work, right? People working. I believe in the spiritual realm, there's a sign over every individual Christian and over every local church that says, God at work. God is working. Right? God is working. He is transforming congregations, transforming individual sons and daughters into Christ-likeness. I love how Paul puts it in chapter 2 of Philippians. Work out your fear, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Right? Greater personal Christ-likeness comes about through God working in us. And greater personal Christ-likeness is the ultimate goal of our life. I love how he ends his prayer, to the glory and praise of God. To the glory and praise of God. Right? That's the ultimate goal that God has for your life. I don't know you any more than you know me, but if you're, if you're a child of God, I do know God's ultimate goal in your life. It's, it's Christ-likeness. And one of the synonyms for Christ-likeness is holiness. That is God's ultimate plan for your life is holiness. Right? And too many times we get it mixed up. We think, and certainly the world thinks this, that we think it's happiness. Right? We, we, orient, we orient our lives in such a way as to make ourselves, put ourselves in a position that makes us the, the happiest because we think that's what it's about. This position, this, these possessions, that money, this status, it will make me happy because that's the ultimate goal in life. N- no, the ultimate goal is Christ-likeness or holiness. That's the ultimate goal. And it just so happens, if you're a child of God, that as God transforms you and makes you holier and holier, you actually become happier and happier because you're true to plumb to your ultimate purpose in life, which is Christ-likeness. But the tail cannot wag the dog. Right? Like, like God does not sit enthroned in the heavens and look down and say, oh man, how can I make, how can I make Nate super-duper happy today? How can I move heaven and earth to make him super happy today? That's not how God thinks. Closer to the truth is God sits enthroned in the heavens and looks down on his child, on Susan, on Heather, on Mike, and says, how can I make my child more like Jesus today? How can I make her holier today? You see, God, God didn't want to use that relationship with that prickly lady in my first church. It wasn't about using that relationship to make me happy, because it wasn't. but it's about making me holy, making me more like God's son, Jesus. So you know, I sat there at that meeting, that that church ministries meeting, just kind of stunned, right? I was like, whoa, what just happened here? Right, she, she laid into me, and then she got up, stormed out the room, slammed the door. And... I can tell you, to be honest, I'm just going to be transparent here. If, if that interaction had, had taken place somewhat earlier in my tenure, I would have said, hey, folks, 
can you, let's just take a little five-minute break, okay? I'll, I'll be back in five. Just. And I would have ran out, caught up to that, that lady before she could get in her car and drive away, and I said, whoa, now it's my turn. Now it's my turn. And I would have just sliced her up like a salami, just an assassin. I'm just being honest, I would have, right? And I walked away with a big smile on my face, yes. But you know, God had been working in my heart, right? God had been working in my heart. He'd been growing my experience of his love for people. And so a couple days after that meeting, I call her up on the phone. I say, um, can we talk? She's like, sure. So I make an appointment. I go over to her house that week, and I sit in the, in the front room of her house with her and her husband. Not to get an apology, which was kind of due one. Not to tell her off. I said, you know what? That meeting a couple days back, it, it kind of got away from us. And uh, I said something um, that clearly set you off. And that was never my intention. I am genuinely sorry for what I said that it set you off like that. That was not my intention. I'm really sorry. And our relationship from that meeting changed for the better. Now, don't get me wrong. She was still a prickly person. Okay, at the end of the day, it is hard to give a porcupine a haircut. But our relationship did change for the better. You know, today, if you're bumping up against a prickly person and you're trying to manage his conflict and you're, and you're looking for a way out, you know, Paul doesn't give us a way out. But he gives us a way through. Right? Praying for a deeper love for one another praying for sharper spiritual clarity and for greater personal Christ-likeness. Will you commit to pray alongside of the Apostle Paul as he prayed for the church? Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful that um, you've not left us as orphans in this world, as your children, but you have... Uh, given us your blessed spirit who lives inside us, that the God of the universe now lives inside of us through his blessed Holy Spirit. And your spirit, your almighty spirit, is transforming us and shaping us uh, from the inside out. Father, forgive us when we get in the way of that. Forgive us when we uh, focus on the outside to the neglect of the inside. Father, I pray for people here, any here who might be uh, in a difficult situation relationally uh, with a prickly person, a bully of some sort who is um, uh, emotionally or relationally taking advantage of them or seeking to. God, I pray for them. I pray for uh, a special imparting of your grace, even at this time. Your grace to enable them to stand up against uh, difficulty, knowing that you're using this mysteriously uh, as it were, uh, to transform them and make them more like Jesus to the glory and praise of God. And so we thank you that you are so powerful that you can do even things like that. We pray, Lord, a prayer of release for your spirit to continue to shape us um, 
through our relationships, through our parenting relationships, our marriage relationships, our friendships, that all of these relationships, our employer-employee relationships, are ultimately about shaping us and forming us and making us more like Jesus. So Lord, would you do that? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.